So guys, we are uh, in this series, I don't think I've taught on anything but the Heroes and Villains series for a while. This is the 31st lesson, and this is a great contrast to last week's. Uh, last week we looked at a villain, and, and for my money, he's one of the worst villains in all the Bible. I think Judas only would be higher in their villainy, in my mind, than Doeg the Edomite was. This guy that loved bloodshed and murder. At Saul, King Saul's command, he murdered 85 innocent priests. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he went and he wiped out their village, wiped out all of their families as well. In contrast to that, this morning we've got somebody who really, really loves life. And it's just this epitome of someone who not only loves life, but loves it the way God does. And, and everything this character does is to promote life. And the person we'll look at this morning is Abigail. We'll be in 1 Samuel 25. Abigail's introduced there. Her name comes up a couple of other places, but her story really occurs just in that chapter. And when we're introduced to her, she is the wife of Nabal. That's our story. But she ends up being the wife of King David. And one of the things, for my money, Doeg's sort of the, the basest of the base in villainy. But Abigail, for Mike's opinion, is one of the loveliest characters in all the Bible. And I don't say that just because we're looking at her this morning. That's always been my take on this woman in 1 Samuel 25, one of the loveliest characters in all the Bible. Abigail also combines some of the finest elements of women of faith we've already looked at in this series. Like Rahab, she's responsible for saving the lives of those in her household. Like Deborah, when male leadership fails, she is the one who comes in and literally saves the day. And like Ruth, she's characterized just by this great loyal love that ends up being used by God to save the lives of many. Her story takes place, obviously, with David's life about 1000 BC. And as we'll see in a minute, it takes place in south central Judah geographically. Guys, the main points, and I hope these come through in spades very clearly in her story as we're going through and we're thinking and we leave, God is determined to save or preserve life and we should be too. God loves life. Our God is a life-loving, life-giving God. And in fact, you know, 1 John says God is love, but God is also life. And we define life as being in relationship, vital relationship with God. To be dead spiritually is to be disconnected from God. God loves life, preserves life, and we should too. Uh, humility can often accomplish what power alone cannot. And guys, I just, I just tell you, in our culture in this day and time, you can't hear the call to humility too many times because our culture has become so, so proud and that has seeped into the church as well. Humility, not only a Christ-like characteristic, but something that helps us as we speak to others. And third, Wisdom is crucial in helping others see God's perspective. You know, on one hand, we say the message of the gospel is simple. And when Paul preaches to the Corinthians, he says, I kept it simple. And we're good with that. The gospel message is simple. But it doesn't mean we're simple tons. It doesn't mean we're simplistic. And we need to marshal God's kind of wisdom when we interact with others in the preservation of life. And you'll see that in spades in Abigail. So, we're going to spend much more time in the text than I normally do because it's the dialogue between David and Abigail that's really the center 
of her life in the center of our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, it would pay to turn to 1 Samuel 25. That's page 247 in the Pew Bible, and we'll start right in at verse 1. By the way, as we begin on this map, just for helpfulness, that the circle shows Carmel and Maon, if you can read that. And our story takes place in Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel. Um, there's a Mount Carmel over on the coast. This is Carmel in south central Judah. The arrow shows you where Jerusalem is. So this is taking place down in the south, south central area of the tribe of Judah. And David, this doesn't show it, the map doesn't show it, but the wilderness of Paran would be down around Beersheba and where it says Amalek as well. So geographically, that's where this is taking place. So 1 Samuel 25.1, Samuel died. All Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. He hasn't been involved in our story for a while, but at this juncture, his life is over. He is passed, and we know that we're dealing only with Saul and David as key leaders at this point. So David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon, you can see there under the purple line, whose business was in Carmel. Carmel means fruitful field. Uh, the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and guys, shearing sheep for him would have been like a Kansas farmer bringing in wheat or soybeans or corn. When you brought, if you're a shepherd and you bring in all these sheep and shear the wool, that's your profit for the year. So this is a big deal. Shearing his sheep in Carmel, the name of the man was Nabal, which Abigail will tell us means fool. And the name of his wife was Abigail, which means father's delight. Isn't that a lovely name and a lovely meaning? Now listen to the contrast. The woman was discerning and beautiful. She's smart and she's physically lovely. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He's obstinate. He's evil. He's a perfect opposite to his wife. Verse 4, so David heard in the wilderness, so he's south of that area, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Greet Nabal in my name. Remember at this point, David's a hero in Israel. He's the giant slayer. He has led Israel's armies. Everyone knows who he is. So he tells the guys, when you go up, present yourself as my representatives in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. That's a great welcome. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Stop for a moment. We won't read what the servants say in their entirety, but it's more than this. David's men defended Nabal's sheep and shepherds. So it was something to say, your sheep and your shepherds have been out in no man's land all this time, and you suffered no loss because we took care of you and your stuff. That's what he's telling him. Uh, ask your young men, they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. When the shearing was done, there would have been a festival. They would have been eating and drinking. It would have been a great feast. It would have been a celebration, a great time. 
Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David has sent 10 men. So he's hoping at this time of festivity and largesse that Nabal will have no problem loading 10 men down with what they can carry and taking it back to David and his men. And remember, David's got hundreds of people to take care of in a wilderness. They would always be looking for more resources, food, drink, etc. Verse 9, so David's young men came and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. So they've said their say and Nabal's there and he pauses and then he speaks. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? He is being as intentionally disrespectful as he can be. He says, I don't know who you're talking about. And then he says, who is the son of Jesse? And if you remember, the last time we heard that phrase, instead of his name, son of Jesse, it was Saul and it was Doeg. So you got Nabal in the same form as wicked King Saul and murderous Doeg saying, we don't even acknowledge this guy by name. He's God's man, remember. We don't even acknowledge him by name. We just say, oh, that guy, that son of Jesse. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. David's just a lowly servant of somebody. And listen to this. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? <laughs> so the stuff is mine, and I have no intention of giving you anything. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And I don't know who David is. Well, the servants go back and tell King David, this is the response. We went in your name, we said the say, and this is what he said. Well, David's ticked immediately, and he doesn't stop to think. And he tells his boys, strap on your swords, we're going to go, and we're going to kill every male in Nabal's household. Now, while those guys go back to David, one of the servants who saw the interaction goes to Abigail. And he says, listen, this is what happened. David's guys came. This is what your husband said. And they said, uh, harm is determined against our master and against all his house if you don't do something. Uh, this is on you. If you don't do something, there's trouble coming. There's going to be trouble in this whole household. So, verse 18. Abigail made haste. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, could be anything, 30 gallons of wine or so, five sheep, already prepared, this is maybe up to 300 pounds of meat, five seas of parched grain, this would be gallons, maybe up to 12 gallons of grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, laid them on donkeys. This is a lot of food, it's a lot of provision. She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. And she didn't tell her husband Nabal. Now does this picture... She says to the young men with all the gifts, she says, go before me and then I'll come after you. Does that sound familiar? Do you know anybody else in the Old Testament who did the same thing? Do you remember how Jacob came back to meet his brother whom he assumed would still be murderously mad at him? Jacob sends all those gifts ahead so that by the time he sees Esau, that anger's mitigated. Well, she's doing the same thing. She, David's going to see the gift first and then he'll see her. Very shrewd, very wise. So she's riding her donkey coming down a hill and David's coming down a hill and that's where they meet. And at verse 23, 
Abigail sees David. She hurried and got down from the donkey. She falls before David on her face, bowed to the ground, fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And then she speaks. Let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord, that is David, regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Now, this sounds very disrespectful on one hand, but remember her, her goal, her motivation is to save her husband's life and the lives of everyone else back in his household. So she's not saying this to intentionally disrespect her husband. She's saying this to mitigate David's anger. This guy's just foolish. You shouldn't stoop down to his level. Uh, she says, but I, your servant, I acknowledge you. My husband doesn't, but I do. I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, because Yahweh, the Lord, has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal, meaningless, irrelevant. Let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord Please forgive the trespass of your servant. She's assigning blame to herself, not to her husband. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord you, God will make you a sure house because my Lord, you are fighting the battles of the Lord, of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Verse 31, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She uses some strong language here when she says blood guilt. She tells David, this is fairly blunt. She said, if you go murder Nabal in the household blood, the guilt of their blood is on your hands. This is not a righteous thing. For you to take your own vengeance is against God's will for your life. And to walk in as soldiers and slay shepherds and servants is of no credit to you whatsoever. And you don't want to do something now in your anger that you'll regret later when you're ruling over Israel in God's name. You don't want to have this on your conscience and look back on that. That was bold and it was accurate. So David says to her, he now responds, this has all been Abigail. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand or taking vengeance for myself. And isn't that interesting? David starts, the conversations start here, with peace, peace, peace. And here it's bless, bless, bless. And everything in between has been because Abigail has interceded. The reason you can go from peace three times to blessing three times is wholly because the story turns on Abigail and her dedication to preserve life. Verse 35, David received from her hand what she had brought. He said to her, go up in peace to your house and listen to this. See, I have obeyed your voice. I've granted your petition. 
I acknowledge what you're saying is true. I was out of line. I'm going to do exactly what you've said. Abigail comes home to Nabal. He's still feasting. He's drunk. He's happy. Life is good. She says nothing. He wakes up the next morning, has his coffee, clears his head, and then she goes in and says, and by the way, I took our stuff and I went and served David because he was going to come and kill us all. And the text says, uh, Nabal's heart died within him. He became like a stone. He was so intent, just in this kind of uh, wicked attitude, to disrespect David, it's all fallen apart, and he just can't believe it. He is depressed because he was unable to disrespect David in the way he intended. Verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Verse 39, David says, Blessed be the Lord. The Lord has avenged the insult. He has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. David sends his servants now back to Nabal's place to ask Abigail to become his wife. And listen to how she treats the servants of David. Now remember, a total contrast with Nabal. She rose, she bowed with her servants, or excuse me, she bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid to the servants, this isn't to David, this is to his servants, is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. She gets on her donkey with her other gals. She proceeds and becomes David's wife. From Nabal's wife to David's wife, the future king's wife. You know, we just celebrated the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence. By the way, the 4th is a great time to read those founding documents. It just reminds you from what lofty heights we have, we have been. You know, the inalienable right, the founder said, of a person to life. Liberty and happiness are meaningless if a person can't live. And that was sort of strong language in their day because governments could be so fickle, and that was certainly true in biblical times. You know, if you lived under any kind of a despot or a king, they usually had the power of life and death. The founder said, God gives each person life. And God's the one who should take life. You remember, by the way, it doesn't mean this doesn't say anything about capital punishment or other things like that. But it's that God values life. God is the one who gives life. And it's not up to us to willy-nilly take life because we're upset or we're angry or anything like that. The God we know and love and serve displayed in Abigail loves life. And this whole story is Abigail working to preserve or to save life. Now imagine if you're Abigail and you've been married all these years to Nabal. That would not be a happy existence, would it? She might have thought to herself, this is great. I just sit on my hands. I don't do anything. David's going to come and get rid of my husband, the husband I've been wanting to get rid of all along anyway. This is a good day. The flip side, though, the servant says, you know what? Harm's going to come to all of us here. Can you imagine if David had gone in and done what Doeg did? Wiped out all the innocents? Not only blood on his hands, but they'd all be gone. And she knows this. She gets it. She is working to preserve life. And think of this. Death is coming. Death, it's on its way. Abigail meets death on the road. If she doesn't intervene, if Abigail, the father's delight, does not meet death, death is going to overcome that household. And that's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it, of what God in Christ has done for us? 
Jesus meets death on the hill before death meets us. That they're under this sword of judgment. They don't know, but they're under a sword of judgment. David's ready to come and slay them all for Nabal's offense. Not for theirs. They didn't sin in the same way Nabal did. But they're all under judgment, whether they know it or not. Under the sword for Nabal's offense. And if Abigail, if the father's delight, doesn't head off death before it gets there, they all die. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus' payment for our sin. She says, she says assign me the blame. And what's Jesus doing on the cross? He's, he says, assign me, Father, the blame for their sins, real sins, all of us. Not just the sins of the first Adam, but the real sins you and I commit day after day, right? None of us are perfect. We sin all the time, James says, in many ways. And Jesus on the cross says, Father, assign me their blame. On a hill, Jesus meets death for us. We were the ones under judgment, under God's righteous judgment. Not, not this unholy vengeance, but under God's perfect wrath. And Jesus says, I'll take the blame so their lives can be spared. You see this lovely, lovely quality of Abigail in loving life, and that's everything that's motivating everything that occurs in this story. And guys, before we aspire nobly to Abigail's view of life, God's view of life, God loves life, let's not start with Abigail. Let's understand that in this story, you and I are Nabal. We're not Abigail. We're Nabal. Who was under God's judgment? We were. Who does 1 Corinthians 1 say God saves? The foolish. Before we come to Christ, what are we? We're fools. We're fools. We're without God. We're without hope. We're under judgment. We're under wrath. We are the Nabals. Now, we want to become the Abigails. Because in Abigail, we see that Christ-like love for life. Not death. For life. But guys, that's not where we start. We start as Nabal. And God is saving us as Nabals. Then we can aspire nobly to love life as Abigail did. And I think this is particularly meaningful for Christians. Guys, the culture that we live in, it's so hateful and it's so disrespectful. You know, I heard on the news hour just this week a book called, uh, an interview with the author of a book called Love Your Enemy. The author is not a Christian. Uh, his key spiritual influence is the Dalai Lama, Buddhist. But here's a secular guy making an argument in this culture and time saying we should love those who disagree with us. I find that interesting. And he basically points out that if you despise the people that don't agree with you, there's no reproachment. They don't hear you and you don't hear them. And there's just this despising quality in which it's one-upsmanship. And at, frankly, at the end of the day, it's simply the spirit of anger and vengeance and murder. It's death-loving attitude in our culture today. We want to make sure as Christians we remember we were alienated from Christ. We were under God's judgment and somebody shared the Gospel with us. And we got saved not based on what we did, but on what Christ did. We should love life. And we shouldn't be sharing a message of hatred 
except about what God hates, we should be saying that this is the day of God's grace. He's overlooking judgment. You can come home. You can come in. Your life can be saved. That's what people should know us for. Not the kind of language and attitude that's informing almost all the public discourse that's going on today. Absolutely anti-Christian. Ezekiel 18.23 is one of several references in Ezekiel where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn and would live. And that's what you see animating Abigail. It's godly love for life and for others. Christ-like faithfulness means we're not only personally embracing God through Christ and faith in the Gospel and the person work of Jesus, but it means that we're sharing that life-giving attitude and message with others as well. So she loves life, and that's what's animating everything. Jesus said He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. We want to make sure that we're on the side of promoting life, not death, not accusation. Now, the other thing you see in Abigail is this humility. So, you've got to have this picture in your mind. There's a little woman on a donkey riding down a hill. And there's an army of 400 armed warriors coming the opposite direction. How does this woman stop an army of 400 soldiers? How does one individual stop a host? She has no power to do so. If it's power, she's out of luck. There's no way to stop them. She's overwhelmed. So she doesn't use power. And that's a good thing. What she does, though, is she displays humility so that in wisdom she can share a message. So she starts with humility. Uh, go back to verse 23 if your Bible's open. And I hope you caught some of this as we read through. When Abigail sees David before a word has been uttered, she sees David, she hurries and gets down off the donkey. She falls before David on her face, bowed to the ground, she fell at his feet. We're meant to see as soon as she sees David, she physically takes this posture of humility. A word hasn't been uttered, but David knows this gal is ready to plead for something. This physical posture of, I'm at your mercy. You remember we said that worship really means, in the scriptural term, that we throw ourselves face down before God. And in doing so, we say, you're God, we're not. All that we are, all that we have is yours. She throws herself before David and says, you're in control, I'm not. I'm at your mercy. Physically, the posture precedes anything she says. And then did you notice, and the repetition's important, she calls David Lord 14 times in that dialogue. 14 times. And she calls herself your servant six times in the interaction just with David. These terms come up again when David's men come. Why is she doing that? She physically takes this position, David's high, she's low. And then she says, you're the man, I'm not. You're the master, I'm the servant. You're up here, I'm down here. Everything she says is, is couched in humility. You're the one, I'm not. I'm here to beseech you. She also points out David's present power and his future status as the king. She says, we know you're the next king. Everybody knows that. So she says, you're God's man. 
And I'm your servant. You're the future king and I'm one of your subjects. Everything she does to David is to say, David, you're up here and I'm down here. All I can do is plead my case to you. I have no other influence. I have no other means of getting you to do what I want. I'm humbling myself before you. You're it and I'm not. And she takes the blame for her husband. There's no posture too low. There's no words that are too difficult for her to speak in humility to preserve life. Humility is what she enters this scene with. Now, if you compare that with Philippians 2, and you know this is the essential passage in the New Testament, that Christians are meant to put on Christ-like humility. You remember the whole series is, what does Jesus' life look like? We see that elements of that in people in the, of faith in the Bible. And what does that look like in their life? And so what does that look like for me? Well, in Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Life's more than about me. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. She is laying herself out for Nabal, her foolish husband, and for all the people of her household. She's counting them more important than her, just as Christ did us. She said, think like Jesus did. He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant. Abigail keeps saying, I'm your servant. Same thing Jesus did. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He took our blame. You know, and the imagery in Scripture is, God the Son comes down to earth, that's a step down. Enters our humanity, that's another step down. Doesn't just enter our humanity, but is born lowly, another step down. And then last of all, to die as a criminal on the cross, Paul reminds us in Galatians, means to be cursed by God. And in the world at that time, a crucifixion was the lowest form of life on earth. Jesus has gone as high as possible to as low as possible. He has humbled Himself. And we're told as believers to put on Christ-like humility. And that's exactly what you see in the life of Abigail. Guys, we've said this before, but a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. You can't be proud and entertain the attitude of Christ. It's impossible. But again, I think because we tend to absorb elements of the culture I think that proud attitude has crept into the church, into our lives, just like it exists in the culture too. That we're easily offended. We're ready to rise up in arms like David was because we're proud instead of humble. Abigail loved life, and out of the love for life, she presented herself humbly so that she could save and preserve life. Exactly character qualities you see in Jesus. In fact, seven times in the epistles alone, Christians are engendered to be humble or to put on humility. And you remember both Peter and James say that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is a key characteristic of the life of Christ for any Christian at any time in every circumstance. So how are we, how are we doing when we feel offended, when someone offends our sensibilities? when we read a political column we don't agree with, when we see somebody else advocating policies or politicians we don't agree with, or other people in other parts of the body of Christ, how are we when our sensibilities are offended? How do we tend to respond? Humility is the key characteristic 
of Christ. And that's what we should engender in ourselves as well. And not only that, guys, but this is the deal. What, what Abigail is doing, the goal is to preserve life, and on the platter or plate of humility, she serves up wisdom. Now, she could have said the same things. We'll look at what she says and what she does that are elements that are very shrewd and very prudent. But the, the wisdom elements are served on the plate of humility. You know, if you offer me something that I should want, but you offer it in a way that's distasteful to me, I may just say no thanks. One of the things Proverbs says that the wise man makes truth acceptable. And what she's doing is wisely, shrewdly, humbly offering God's wisdom on the plate of humility so that David can hear it. She starts this way. She tells David, uh, put the blame on me, not Nabal. Now, why does she do that? She's trying to save Nabal's life. But think of this. So she's telling this mighty man of war and all of his army, uh, really, I'm the one to blame. And it would be like David saying, okay, you're the one to blame, and so now I'm going to fight a girl. The mighty man of war is now going to face a girl. It's like, this doesn't work. This was shrewd. This was wise. Blame me. And if you blame me, you'll see you can't act murderously. You don't want to fight a girl. It was wise. It was shrewd. Presented humbly. She also, and this is really key, and we want to be careful the way we might try and do this ourselves. It's genuine here. It's not manipulative. She invokes God's personal name, Yahweh, seven times, number of completions, seven times in this dialogue. Why do you think that is? So she said to David, I'm here, I'm the servant, you're the master. But then she says, oh, and by the way, Yahweh's part of this mix. What does that do to David? David, you're the servant and Yahweh's your master. You don't answer to me, but you answer to God. So seven times she uses God's personal name to remind David, uh, there's more than you at stake and you'll give an account to someone else. I may answer to you now, but you answer to God. And so she invokes God's name and I think that's actually key for David to remind him, this isn't just about me and my offense. I answer to God. I can't do this wicked thing because I answer to God. I can't stand before God with blood on my hands. This was very wise, very shrewd. And I think this was one of the key things that helps David shift his understanding, cool his jets and shift his attitude about how he's seen what's going on. What's God want to do in this? You know, when it's all over, David's free to say, God avenged me. I didn't avenge myself. Nabal's gone. He's dead by God's hand, not by mine. God's responsible, I was responsible to God, and God engaged on my behalf. She is so discreet, she's so wise that David's able to say, I have obeyed your voice. You are so spot on, you are so right. You're the servant, I'm the master, but you're right, and I'm going to do exactly what you've said. And guys, one of the things we see throughout Scripture is that God values wisdom. You know, there's a genre of literature in the Bible called the wisdom literature. And we ought to be in it regularly. Books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. That literature is there to help us specifically gain godly wisdom. 
It's powerful language. It exalts God. It tells us what to do in different circumstances. We're supposed to have godly wisdom. We should be meditating in Scripture. We should be in wisdom literature regularly because that's what it's there for. How does God react? What does God want me to do in this kind of a setting? The wisdom literature is all about that. And along with that, and this is great, this is sort of a, this is a bonus. As Christians, we know life, real life, through Christ. Christ is our life. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. The more fully we experience this relationship of the life of Christ, the greater wisdom we gain. 1 Corinthians 1 again, God tells us that Christ has been made for us wisdom. We start as fools, but we have God's wisdom because we have Christ. Colossians 2 says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if you and I want treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they've all been hidden in one place in Christ. So when you and I pursue our relationship with Christ, what you'll find is you'll gain wisdom. And when you gain wisdom, you'll find that you have more of the mind and the attitude and the character and the life of Christ. We want to value wisdom the way God means us to, the way you see implemented through Abigail. So are we embracing wisdom? Is it the world's wisdom that's characteristic of us? Is it God's wisdom? Christ-like wisdom? What's informing our thoughts, our attitudes? Is it God's Word? Is it His Spirit? Is it the truth? For my money, Abigail is just one of the loveliest Christ-like examples. Loving life in the spirit of humility and wisdom. And let's just close this down, putting this all together related to Christ and the Gospel. Jesus came according to the wisdom of God to become one of us, to take our blame in the ultimate act of humility, bowed to the Father in His death on the cross in order to save life. So we want to make sure that those same elements, those same key elements of Christ that we see in Abigail are ours. We've embraced life through faith in Jesus. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But that also we're agents of life, that we're sharing the hope of the gospel we have with others, that we're living it out through our Christ-like attitudes, and that we're verbally sharing the gospel humbly with those around us. With that, if you would, uh, rise and let's read together from Psalm 97. The worship team will come up and get us going in some songs here in just a moment. But let's, let's read this together. Yeah, stretch yourself. Up we go. Psalm 97. <laughs> For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name.